Well, thank you very much for the hospitality that was extended to us this afternoon. We had a great time, and it's good to be back with you and to be able to open the Word with you once again. If you take your Bibles, please turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We'll begin here and then end up in Psalm 116 uh, that Paul quotes at this point. This morning I'd mentioned uh, that God had not made it easy on the Apostle Paul. Uh, in spite of uh, all of my expectations, at least, I would have thought uh, since Paul was uh, the servant of the Lord and was doing a fantastic job as a cross-cultural evangelist, missionary, and church planter, uh, that God would straighten the path before him and make his life easy. And we uh, mentioned this morning about the thorn in the flesh that he endured, and in this particular section, um, though he was shy to describe this very often, the Corinthians uh, kind of forced him uh, to rehearse some of the difficulties that he was undergoing. The Corinthians were listening to false apostles uh, who were telling them that Paul was not an apostle, and, and so he is uh, rehearsing for them some of the evidence uh, that he truly is an apostle, and he describes uh, the suffering that the Lord uh, had him endure as he was uh, seeking to uh, promote the gospel and plant these churches. What I think is interesting in our theology is that uh, perhaps it's because we're in America and we expect uh, things to be easy for us, uh, it surprises us and sometimes even knocks us off our feet spiritually that we would experience tremendous trial and difficulty, uh, that we would uh, undergo uh, times uh, of uh, great distress. And we might think that that means the Lord doesn't love us or the Lord isn't caring for us or the Lord uh, isn't listening to our cries, none of which is true. And so I'm seeking to demonstrate uh, first from the Apostle Paul and then the quotation that he makes from Psalm 116 that the Lord purposely allows his servants to undergo distress and difficulty and trial, not uh, because uh, he's being mean to us. It's partly due to the circumstances of living in a fallen world. It's partly due uh, to the consequences of sin, but it's not necessarily our own personal sin that has led us into this, Part of it is for our own spiritual development. Part of it is to allow the Lord to shape us to be the people he wants us to be. So let's look first at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning with verse 8. 2 Corinthians 4, beginning with verse 8. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. That the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake. That the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then death is working in us, but life in you. Let me pause and make some comments about that paragraph. 
Uh, if, if, we, if we were crushed and perplexed and persecuted and struck down, I doubt we would have as much balance and understanding as what the apostle is describing here. He says, yeah, that's true, but I'm not crushed, I'm not in despair, I'm not forsaken, I'm not destroyed, because I understand what God is doing. Uh, we may think when he's describing uh, always caring about and the, the dying of the Lord Jesus that per perhaps he's close to death, and, and, and sometimes he is. Sometimes he is near death. There was a point in which he was stoned and left for dead. So, yes, the things that he's doing are so risky that he could get himself killed, but he's describing how he's not living for pleasure, as we Americans do, but he is daily allowing the crucifixion of Jesus Christ to affect him because he is crucified with Christ in the sense that he is dying to self and is coming alive in Jesus Christ. And so part of the discipline of enduring these hardships is actually causing him not to trust in himself, not to long for peace and safety and ease and pleasure, but actually to focus on the work itself because daily he's dying to his selfish pleasures and he's focused on what the real task is. And we'll see this in Psalm 116, verse 13, 2 Corinthians 4, 13. And since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, and this is his quotation from Psalm 116, it's what drove me back to Psalm 116 to say, why did he quote that? And that's what the message is about tonight, is what in the world is Psalm 116 about? But he says, since we have the same spirit of faith as the psalmist who wrote Psalm 116, and he says, just as he said, I believe, therefore I speak. He says, we also believe, therefore we speak. And what he's saying is, I'm with him, that he did not give up hope, though he had every reason, humanly speaking, to feel that way. But he continued to have faith, therefore he spoke up and told the truth about who God is and how he is to be trusted. Therefore, I'll speak up and I'll tell the truth of who God is and how he's to be trusted in spite of my circumstances. Verse 14, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. For all these things are for your sakes, that grace, having spread through the many, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. And that's where I feel we are often in our lives, is we have such difficulty in lives when we're expecting such ease of life that we're tempted to lose heart. And he's had it much worse than I've ever had it. And he says, I'm not losing heart, and so I say, well, tell me why. Tell me how it is that I could carry about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus and not lose heart. Well, he'll tell us. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Even though the outward man is perishing, 
meaning not only is my body wearing out, but they're beating me up to the point where my body just might wear out. But he's saying the outward man is growing weary. Yet the inward man, the person of who he is in fellowship with God himself, is being renewed day by day. Do you become more tired day by day? Do you find yourself more subject to sickness day by day? Are, are you uh, subject physically to increasing challenges? Uh, are you suffering affliction? Are you suffering persecution uh, for standing up for the Lord? But he's saying, no, but God is ministering to me in my spirit, in my inner man. I'm getting better and better, healthier and healthier. I'm doing well, spiritually speaking. And then listen to what he describes the endurance of being hard-pressed on every side, perplexed, persecuted, and struck down. He says, for our light affliction, it's an interesting perspective, our light affliction, which is but for a moment, meaning I'm not going to endure this very long, this is temporary, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. So if we look on external things, we'll become depressed to the point we'll be completely ineffective and stay in bed all day and feel sorry for ourselves. But he says, I'm not looking at the outward things. I'm not looking at the things that I can see. I'm looking for the things which I cannot see, for the things which are seen are temporary. I'm looking for the things that are eternal. I'm looking for the things that I can't see. I walk by faith, not by sight. Now, doesn't that make you curious as to what Psalm 116 was all about? Makes me curious. So join me on a journey uh, to go back to the Old Testament to hear what the psalmist wrote. Would you turn then, please, to Psalm 116? It's in a grouping of psalms called the Egyptian Hallel Psalms. Hallel means hallelujah. It means uh, praise the Lord. Uh, they're, they're called Egyptian psalms because they were sung by the nation of Israel in celebration and in memory of their release from bondage in Egypt. And so, for example, there is a line within this psalm about loosing their bonds, and this was reminiscent of their time in Egypt, and, and they therefore liked to sing these psalms. So Psalms 113 through 118 were sung especially as pilgrims were going up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. If you recall, the Passover was the celebration of how God released them with the 10th plague of the, uh, the killing of the firstborn, but passed over those who had taken the lamb and applied the blood to the doorposts as symbolic of their faith in him. You may also remember that the Passover, this great high feast, was the time at which Jesus was offered as the sacrificial lamb. You remember John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the Passover lamb. We know that today that the Jews who celebrate the Passover either sing or recite these same psalms, 113 through 118, during their Seder. 
whether Jesus on the Thursday night in which he was betrayed before the Friday crucifixion also sang this psalm is a very interesting thought. We don't know for sure, but we know they sang those psalms, such as on uh, the triumphal entry Sunday, uh, and it's quite possible when he was seeking to celebrate the Passover with his disciples one last time that these words might have been on his lips that night. All very interesting. We don't know. But this psalmist was suffering greatly, and he works his way through it and explains to us his self-talk of how he speaks to himself about the difficulty he's going through. You ever done that? Have you ever talked to yourself where you say like, don't think that, that is not true. Don't think that, that is not helpful. This is what you ought to think. And this is him singing a song about how he worked his way through one of the most difficult times in his life. He's surely in severe trouble and sorrow. It's possible he's in imminent death. It could be that he's subject of treachery uh, and someone has betrayed him and seeking to get him killed. It's possible that he's referring to persecution and that he is, in a sense, personifying the idea of the difficulty he's experienced as if it feels as if he's going to die and though he's not actually going to die. We're not particularly sure, but whether he's physically going to die or feels like dying, you can feel along with him if you have suffered such great distress and have cried out to the Lord uh, for help. Psalm 116, verse 1. I love the Lord. You wouldn't expect him to say that first, but he's already worked his way through this. And so he's announcing to us how he feels now in light of all that he's been through in this great distress, he can now say with great affirmation, I love the Lord. Why? Because he has heard my voice and my supplications. He hears my prayer. He heard my cry for mercy. He did respond. You ever prayed and felt like he wasn't listening or felt like, uh, didn't I say it right? Or, or what happened here? I, I thought we were communicating with each other. Uh, I thought you may have heard me. Remember Mary and Martha both were in agreement when they had sent word to Jesus that Lazarus was sick, you know, he whom you love is sick, and they just assumed that Jesus would drop everything and come right away. He waited until he was four days dead to show up, and they say, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. In other words, weren't you listening? Have you ever felt that way with God? Well, he says, I'll tell you the truth, he does hear. And that's why I say he, I love him, because he did minister to me in my need. And that's what the Apostle Paul was reporting to us in 2 Corinthians 4. You might have thought he'd been knocked down to the point in which he'd never get up again, but he says, no, momentary light affliction. It's working together for the greater glory of God, now that I see it. But poor Joseph, when he gets thrown in a pit, poor Joseph, when he gets sold into slavery, poor Joseph, when he's thrown into prison, he had had that dream that he was going to go big and God would use him wonderfully. And yet, 
Everything that's happening to him, it sure doesn't look like that. And yet there were these little glimmers of hope where they didn't kill him, but he was sold into slavery, and that he prospered in Potiphar's house, but then there was that problem with his wife. And, and he was thrown into prison, but then the jailer let him run the whole place. You know, over and over there's these glimpses that God still has a plan for him. And so the psalmist says, when you think he doesn't hear you, let me tell you the truth, he does. Therefore, I love God because he does hear me. Verse 2, he has inclined his ear to me. He does listen to me because he answers my prayer. In 1 John 5, when John has scared his readers to the point where they wonder, like, am I saved? You gave such strong descriptions of how one must live in order to be a genuine believer, in, in order to cause these false teachers to be clearly seen as false. You say, like, am I secure? And he says, sure you are, because you are secure because you've entrusted yourself to Jesus Christ. And he says, try this out, pray. I'll even tell you what to pray about. He says, if we pray according to his will, we know he hears us. And we know if he hears us, we have what we asked. And so he says, try this on for size. I don't say you pray for those false teachers, but pray for this. Pray for the restoration of your brothers and sisters who've been confused by those false teachers and have fallen into sin. Pray that God will restore them. That you know is God's will. He will answer you, and you will see prayer works. Isn't that interesting? God stretches us and then confirms us in our faith as we trust in him. He does answer prayer. So now he rehearses some of his difficulty in verse 3. He says, the pains of death surrounded me. More literally, he speaks of like cords that come up and entangle him, almost to strangle him. He says, the pangs of Sheol, the terrors of this distress just laid hold of me. It's as if he's personifying death that's holding on to him and dragging him down. He, he said, I found trouble and sorrow. I was in great distress. Life has become hellish to me. But what did he do about it? Verse 4, then I called upon the name of the Lord. And he got straight to the point. He says, oh, Lord, I implore you. Deliver my soul. Rescue me. And he rehearses to himself what he knows about God. That isn't at all like the circumstances he's experiencing, but he's saying to himself, who is my God? What do I know him to be like? And these are the things that when we're awakened at 3 in the morning and we can't go to sleep because all of our problems are just overwhelming us and everything that may have seemed small during the daylight hours seems overwhelming at night. Listen to how he talks to himself about the truth of God. He describes God's perfections, his character traits as his deliverer. He says, gracious is the Lord and righteous, verse 5. Yes, our God is merciful. He's full of compassion. Verse 6, the Lord preserves the simple. 
simple you see in Proverbs as a person who's naive. I think he uses it here in the sense of being a needy person. The Lord does guard and protect me in my need. I was brought low. I was in great need, but he saved me. He delivered me. And as he lists off these attributes, he says, I know my God is gracious. I know he's righteous. I know he will preserve me. I know he will save me. So why is my soul in such distress? And listen to the self-talk in verse 7 where he actually speaks to his own soul. He says, return to your rest, O my soul. One of my favorite uh, Old Testament quotations is, be still and know that I am God. Cease striving. Stop trying to do it on your own. You know me. So act like you know who I am and how trustworthy I am and how loving and merciful and gracious I am. I am the kind of person who would preserve you and save you. So return to your rest, O my soul. Rest in the security of the Lord. Stop being in such turbulence. For the Lord has dealt bountifully with you in the past and he will also in the future. He is a good God. Verse 8, for you delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from falling. And therefore, how does he celebrate? He says, I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I do believe that he will rescue and heal me and restore me and deliver me and bring me back up so I can walk before him among those who are living and I can speak up as to what the Lord has done. And the first line of verse 10 is what Paul quoted in 2 Corinthians 4. I believed, therefore I spoke. And what he's saying there is, because I trusted in the Lord in spite of these circumstances... He has given me an opportunity to speak up for him and to testify of his goodness and his mercy and the fact that he rescued me. And that's what Paul says. I believed, therefore I spoke, and I'm speaking up about how I walk by faith and not by sight. I was greatly afflicted, but I did not lose faith. Verse 11, I said in my haste, with great alarm and fear and dismay, all men are liars. In fact, that line is quoted by Paul in Romans 3, 4, where he says, let God be true, though every man be found a liar. Yes, you can't trust in men. Men are treacherous people. They can persecute you. They can revile you and lie about you and slander you. You cannot trust him, and all men are liars. But what should I do? He says in verse 12, what shall I render to the Lord? How shall I say thank you to the Lord for all of his benefits towards me, for all of his goodness? 
He senses nothing would be enough. Anything I would give would just be a token of my appreciation. But what should I give? What should I render to the Lord? Then he says, verse 13, I will take up the cup of salvation. I think here uh, he's speaking of a libation, not a drink. I think he's speaking of a thanksgiving sacrifice that he would give in the temple. And he says, I'll take up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord. You ever bargain with the Lord and make promises to him where you would say, if you do this for me, I'll do this for you? I don't think we should really try to do that with the Lord. But if we have made promises to the Lord, we should keep them. And he says, I have made vows to the Lord, and I will keep them. And he says, I'll do them publicly now and in the presence of all of his people. So often when we suffer, we suffer in private silently. And so often when we're restored, we are restored privately and do not bless each other with the testimony of how God has helped us. And how encouraging it is when brothers and sisters are allowed to speak up and say, this is where I was, this is where I am now. This is what the Lord has done for me. The Lord has restored me. The Lord has given me hope. The Lord is encouraging me. I will speak up in the presence of his people. Speaking of how risky it was for him and the fact that he felt as if he could die, he says in verse 15, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. You wouldn't normally think of precious and death in the same phrase like that. But he's saying, God does not take lightly your sickness or your trials or perhaps even the possibility of your death. You are valuable to him. Consequently, he carefully watches over you. It grieves the Lord when we suffer. It grieves the Lord if we're subject to death because of sin. He, he does not take our adversity lightly. He would only permit it if necessary. And he says, O oh Lord, truly I am your servant. I am the servant, the son of your maidservant. In other words, I was born within this household of faith, and I will worship you. You've loosed my bonds. You have freed me. I felt entrapped. I felt imprisoned. And yet you have released me. I think this is part of what made this one of these psalms they collected and they sang at the time of the Passover. And so he says, because you saved me, I will offer to you a sacrifice of thanksgiving. I will call upon the name of the Lord. I'll pay my vows to the Lord now in the presence of all of his people in the courts of the Lord's house. So he will go to the temple, and he will speak up about the Lord in the midst of you, O Jerusalem, and he will publicly praise the Lord. So often when the Lord frees us and releases us from difficulty, we say thank you very much, and we go on, and we don't follow through with gratitude. How often have we asked the Lord in prayer for the Lord to do various things, and then we never thank him for what he has done. How often we're forgetful about saying thank you. 
Remember the ten lepers, only one coming back, and how reproving it is to think of being healed of such a terrible disease and not even going back to say thank you? We should be the kind of people who are eager to say thank you for what the Lord has done for us and be willing to thank the Lord for his ministry and his encouragement to us. We should trust in the Lord in spite of our difficulties, and we should see how the Lord has used them to draw praise to himself and to glorify himself and even to shape us to be the kind of people who are more resilient even in greater difficulty. Do you remember when Jonah the prophet was asked by God to go to Nineveh and to preach and to tell them that they were put on notice that unless they repent, God would destroy them? God had done all kinds of various things to get their attention. He'd even sent a solar eclipse. He'd sent all kinds of difficulties to them to where they were softened and ready for the preaching of the prophet Jonah. But Jonah hated the Ninevites. They were truly evil people. They were hideously evil. They would skin people alive just to see them suffer. And he said, I won't do it. I will not do it. I will not preach because you're a merciful God. Who knows if they repent, you'd actually forgive them. And he didn't want to see them forgiven. And so rather than heading to modern-day Aleppo, you've probably heard of Aleppo in the news recently in Syria, have you not? That's old-time Nineveh. He went exactly in the opposite direction, got a ship, and was going to Tarshish. Well, God's not going to let him get away with this. A storm comes. The people on the ship are, are fearing for their lives. They are trying to figure out who's causing this. They eventually figure out Jonah is the cause of it. And he says, throw me into the sea, and, and, and you'll be safe. They don't want to do it. They don't want to feel guilty about it. They're saying, like, don't blame us for this, but he's telling us to throw him into the sea. So they throw him into the sea, and Jonah expects to die. He sinks all the way to the bottom of the sea. Thinking, I deserve it. I should die. And then God prepares this great fish to swallow him. And all of a sudden, he's alive in the belly of the fish. Listen to Jonah's words in Jonah chapter 2 as he prays and works it out with God regarding what just happened there. And you'll see it's very similar to what the Apostle Paul said, and it's very similar to what the psalmist in 116 said. This is Jonah in chapter 2. There, then Jonah prayed to the Lord God, Lord his God, from the belly's fish, the fish's belly, excuse me. He said, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction, and he answered me. Surprise, surprise. That's who God is. He does hear us. He does answer us. What is it about us that we think he doesn't hear an answer? I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction. He answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried. You heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. The floods surrounded me. All your billows and your waves passed over me. Then I said, I've been cast out of your sight. Yet I'll look again toward your holy temple. The waters surrounded me, even to my soul. The deep closed around me. Weeds 
were wrapped around my head. Doesn't that not sound like the cords of death are reaching up and grasping onto me and pulling me down? I went down to the moorings of the mountains. The earth with its bars closed behind me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer went up to you into your holy temple. Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. Sound familiar? Salvation is of the Lord. And the Lord heard his prayer and the fish vomited him out onto dry land. Oh, brothers and sisters, I, I exhort us not to feel so sorry for ourselves when we're experiencing such affliction. We are not alone in this. This happens to all of us who stand up for Christ. Jesus had prophesied, if you stand up for me, they will hate you as they hated me. And because we live in a sinful world, and because there is opposition to us, and even because of the problem of sin in the world, we will face adversity. And yet, what should we do? As Paul said, as the psalmist said, as Jonah has taught us, we should cry out to the Lord. And we should say, I love the Lord because he hears my requests and answers me. And may we say, oh, my soul, return to your rest. Give glory to God because he is a gracious God, a righteous God, a preserving God, a God who saves. This is my God. And I will serve him, and I will praise him, and I will declare who he is to all who can hear. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for how we learn from your servants. So often when we suffer, we feel that we're all alone and no one knows and no one cares and no one hears, and that is not true at all. You know so much better than we do. And you've asked us to cry out to you for help. Oh, Father, has been exemplified by your servants. I pray that we would cry out to you knowing that you hear our voices and knowing that you are gracious and kind and merciful. We ask for your encouragement and your strengthening to go on and serve you as we have seen. Father, Strengthen our faith. Teach our souls to rest in you. May we stop striving and know that you are God. For we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.